0: Okay, folks, uh, we are picking up a study. We started last week just sort of kind of a tie-over in between our study of Ecclesiastes and uh, a study that will be beginning shortly in Song of Solomon. Uh, So we talked about, uh, presented or opened up, uh, began sort of a short study last Sunday on the issue of the Old Testament canon. canonicity. We had a few years ago done as a study specifically on the New Testament. Uh, I believe it was when we were looking at the, but maybe before or during our study of the book of Titus, but uh, in light of the fact that we've already taught through for 15 or 16 months through the book of Ecclesiastes and then are headed into another study over the next few months in Song of Solomon, I thought it would be good for us to touch on this issue of Of the Old Testament and how our Old Testament sort of came together, uh, and and how we have it in the form that we have it, uh, we have it today. So, uh, the canon, I said, the 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 concept of canon really refers to um, uh, that sort of the measuring stick of the faith. It's we're really talking about those books that properly belong in our in our Bibles, uh, both the Old Testament and. Uh, and the New Testament. We talked last week about the importance of that. Uh, certainly, because we are we are under obligation as believers to pay attention to the message of the Bible. We're also on the other side to be careful not to pay attention to what men have to say that are right not speaking for God. And so we don't want our Bibles to be uh, shorter than they than our Bibles need to be. We don't want to leave books out of the Bible. That need to be there. At the same time, we don't want to expand uh, beyond what God intended for us to have um, and to be paying attention to some, uh, to some uninspired words of men or some tradition or some philosophy. And so we have lots of warnings, Old Testament and New Testament, that warn us against those, those kinds of things. Uh, we talked about, uh, asked the question, where is God's word found? And we went to Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, that says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, so literally to our fathers by the prophets, uh, in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So we talked about how God has spoken. He's certainly revealed himself uh, verbally. Uh, He did that as he spoke to men like Adam and to Abraham. Uh, he did that through uh, those inspired messages that were given by men like Jonah and Ezekiel and Amos. He also sent uh, word to his, his word to his people in the form of of writing and even those things that were given to god 's people orally in the Old Testament eventually had to be written down, right or else we would have no way of knowing what those men actually said and so the, we wouldn 't have <clears throat> we, we, we wouldn 't have this sort of um, um, this this objective standard, right? I mean, we have an objective standard. We can go and we can study the Word of God, and we can see what it says. And it's in it's in plain uh, English, if you will. Uh, it was originally in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. But I'm saying you, you can. It, it's not some sort of. Uh, you don't have to have a, a secret decoder from a cereal box to figure out what Scripture has to say there's not all these like secret and mysterious and hidden meanings in Scripture. Uh, the writers of Scripture used nouns and adjectives and verbs and adverbs and prepositional phrases <laughs> and de- dependent clauses and independent clauses and subordinate clauses and all those things to communicate communicate and convey God's truth and understand that. I mean, so we can go to Scripture and we can break those things apart and we can put them back together and we know exactly what the Lord uh, intends to communicate to us as, as his people. Of course, that scripture refers to in Hebrews also to the person of Christ. Uh, but even everything that we know about Christ uh, is dependent upon the written word of the Gospels or other New Testament books uh, and letters that were written by men like Matthew and Luke and and the Apostle Paul. So Christ commissioned these men, these apostles, in the New Testament. They they spoke for him, um, but again, even that oral preaching that was done in the New Testament era was people were expected to take that New Testament, even if it was that, that message it was given even orally, and compare it to the Old Testament scriptures. So again, there's always this assumption that God's people had his word, and that if, if God was continuing to speak, for instance, like in the New Testament times, if he was speaking through the apostles... The, the the God's people were always expected to take what they had already been given, what they had already received as God's revelation in written form, and compare what this this new teaching with that teaching that already existed to determine if it was in line. Right, and so Jesus, time and time again, right, he rebuked people by saying, "Don't you know that it, what it says in the Old Testament? You know, haven't you read this? Don't you understand these things?" And so people were, it was just sort of this assumption that God's people had God's truth and that they weren't just floundering, right? That every generation of believers weren't just sort of, what does God want for us? It wasn't just this open-ended question of, how, sh- how do we live? It was expected that the people knew uh, those things. In fact, Paul, even in the book of Acts, we said, uh, commended the Bereans that when they heard the preaching of the gospel, that they took that and went back to the Old Testament to see how it, it compared. So we talked about that. We talked about inspiration. We talked about um, preservation. Because those are really the two ideas that come together when we talk about uh, canonicity or the canon of the Bible. We're, not, we're talking about this issue of these words were inspired by God. So these these words are God breathed, but they're also words that have been preserved. And if these words weren't preserved, then obviously they're not were not intended to be a part of our canon. So there are there were messages and and there were words given re, God revealing Himself to individuals both uh, audibly through th- uh, through through preaching, through prophecies, through these men writing these things down, um, but in order for us to have a canon, these things had to be preserved over time. And so we talked about sort of this, what people refer to sometimes as the lost books of the Bible, right? That there's these, these books that were written that we don't have and that we've got to somehow go out there and we've got to dig them up and we have to find them. And, of course, there's a lot of different things that people mean by that when they mention these lost books. But, and we said there really are no lost books. God has not lost anything, right? Uh, we have exactly what he intends for for us to have. But there are these different writings, um, uh, things that were, uh, again, some of them were God-inspired that we no longer have. And there's some things that are just, it's just complete conjecture. Where people today are trying to say that there were these things Either there are some things that are mentioned in Scripture, some things that Scripture makes no reference to, but that we need to be, it's almost as if they're saying we need to be more concerned about finding those things than in understanding and studying the things that we already have. So we talked about these three categories over here, and I wrote them on the board. The, The one we talked about last Sunday was the writings mentioned in the Bible that we do not have as a part of our Bibles. So there are certain things that the scriptures themselves refer to, certain writings that we don't actually have in our Bibles. Okay, and we looked at a very long list of these things uh, in the Old Testament. I think we looked at one to probably man f- fifteen different uh, references in the Old Testament uh, of different records, writings, um, annals. Uh, chronicles of different things, uh, but we don 't have those things today we don 't have a written record of those things that are that are mentioned there so again we our conclusion is then they 're not a part of the canon they weren 't intended to be a part of the canon because we don 't have them okay then there are uh, and we mentioned some things also even though we 're not looking specifically at the New Testament uh, there are some some references even in the New Testament to particular writings that that we don't have uh, we don't have preserved for us. Uh then we looked then then we want to pick up here really with this second thing. These are non-existent writings that are not mentioned in the Bible. Okay? Uh, which are essentially wild guesses, okay? Invented by pseudo scholars we have no manuscripts of these supposed books nor any direct reference to them anywhere in the Bible. Uh, some of them are vaguely uh, possible, but most assume that there, uh, there are errors in the Bible, um, meaning that when you, when, you, when you read about these things, you just have to realize the majority of the people that get into th- this particular discussion, these people already look at the Bible as if it's not authoritative. That they're they're going into it with a presupposition that that what we have is is not from God and it's not inerrant. Uh, now, among the the many liberal uh, non-existent books involved in the Bible, uh, there are uh, several that I wanted to point out. One are those associated with what we call, and I've put it over here on the far left, J E P D. There in the box, the J E D P theory, which is a theory that suggests that the Pentateuch, so this is the uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, that the Pentateuch was written not by Moses, and it wasn't written in Moses' lifetime, but that it was written by four or more different authors or schools of authors as late as 1,000 years after Moses. And so again, these are not actual documents that we have. These are, this is a theory that these documents existed, Okay, so the scriptures don't mention these documents and they're non-existent. Okay, so we don't have proof that they actually exist, although you'd be amazed at how many thousands of pages uh are devoted to these kinds of, of things. So you have these four supposed documents. One is the, the J stands for Jehovah's. Um so this was a supposed document that um Uh, that that was allegedly used by an editor of the five books of Moses. Uh, This particular book supposedly used the name Yahweh or Jehovah for God. And of course, this theory accepts the the next three non-existent books. But it says that Moses basically didn't write the books that are attributed to him, but were rather composed by later editors who patched together these four documents and made them into five different books. Books and attributed them to Moses. Okay, Uh, which we we reject um, for one obvious reason because Jesus and the apostles. It's interesting. Jesus and the apostles actually quote from all five books of the Pentateuch and they all attribute them to Moses. Okay, so we have a we have immediately (laughs) we have the apostles of the New Testament and Jesus himself making references back to the Pentateuch. And in those cases, making reference uh, and giving Moses the credit for those, for those writings. So this document hypothesis really rejects biblical inspiration and inerrancy. Uh, the E here stands for Elois. This would have been a second document which supposedly used the word uh, Hebrew word Elohim for God, uh, which is where they get the term for that particular document. The third supposed document makes up the bulk of Deuteronomy and has been called the Deuteronomist document. And then the P is the fourth of the of the documents, which was mainly composed of the sacrificial material. Uh, a lot of the the, the uh, regulations regarding the sacrificial system and the priesthood. So it's been referred to as the priestly document. So basically, what we're saying is that there's a there's a Jehovahist, an Eloist, a Deuteronomist, and a priestly document. These four documents, and a thousand years after Moses, people, someone, or more than one person took these four documents and sort of pieced them together into what we now call the Pentateuch but then gave Moses the credit for doing it. Okay? So, very kind of them. Very kind of them. Nothing like facts-based research. I mean, just, you know, so we have this hype, we have this theory and we have no, we have no evidence in front of us. We don't have a single one of these documents. But that's a great example of just to try to show you how the links that people will go to, right? To just say Moses didn't write that, and the and the other thing is that and it didn't it wasn't written during his lifetime. It was written way 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 down the road. Um, what we find is that when these things were written, that the people of the day were already accepting these things as authoritative. And that's one of the people, the liberals don't want to accept that fact. They want to try to convince you that these things happened and then years and years later, they were finally acknowledged as something that was worth reading and studying and living by. When in reality, these things are written down or these things were were disseminated to the people of that individual's day, and they were already understanding that when that person spoke, they were speaking for God. Right? And that what they had to say, this was important stuff. This wasn't just an opinion that somebody had. This was, you had to do this. You had to obey this, or you had to avoid that, or else you had to deal with God. Right? I mean, you were dealing with God in, in regard to these issues. Uh, then we have this down here at the bottom left the Q document. It's this, um, the liberals have basically done the same thing with the four Gospels that they've done with the books of Moses. Uh, they're basically saying that there there was a an original the word for uh, quelles, I think I think it's actually German but it's it's, it's the word source uh, so what they're saying is that there was a source document which was a, a basic record of the sayings of Jesus um, that's now lost so this document is now lost but that some or all of the four gospel writers had access to it when they wrote their gospels and although there could be conceivably uh, have been such a document, none of, none of the Gospels mention it. So liberals often say this, this Q material, this source material, is what is common to the first, especially the first three Gospels. So we, have, we, we refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptic Gospels, right? Because there's a, there's a, a lot of the same uh, stories are there, a lot of the same uh, language, even a similar sequence. Uh, similar wording in those first three gospel accounts. You have this synoptic is basically the word for together and the word for, for optic, that, that's sight or view. So it's basically saying these three individuals were seeing this similarly. And so what they're trying to do, they call it the synoptic problem that they're trying to solve, is why don't we have these three gospel writers and at certain points they seem to almost say things exactly the same and, but in some ways, they're a little bit different in the way that they share their stories. And so the idea is that they had a source document, which was the record of all these basic facts, and that they basically were taking information from that. And so this, this document was being circulated, and they were basically taking it and using some of the material from that to write their particular gospel uh, accounts. Uh, of course, none of the church fathers mention it. Uh, No writers of Scripture talk about such a thing. And again, those who believe in it usually cast doubt on the true authorship of the four Gospels and the New Testament uh, in general, uh, alleging that they were simply the products of later editors. And so it's that same sort of idea that, you know, these men could, God, the Holy Spirit could not have directed these men to remember in detail the teachings of Jesus and the life of Christ and all these, and even the theological implications from, from those things. That couldn't have happened. And the only way that they could be sharing these things would have been if they were all looking at the same, uh, same source. Do you have a comment? Yeah.
1: What's a, didn't the Jesus uh, conference or seminar...
0: That's basically what it's about, yes. The, G- the Jesus seminar, uh, I mean, a lot of these just, just come out of higher criticism. It's just trying to, again, but you, you go into that discussion... With an understanding, a belief, I think, in 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 the uh, in the fallibility of of the New Testament. So, uh, again, uh, a denial of the full full inspiration of Scripture. Uh, we've got other ones. Er Marcus, allegedly a first draft, that got a Gospel of Mark, but we have no manuscripts. Uh, Proto-Luke, allegedly a first draft of Luke's gospel, no mention of it, no records. Proto-Acts, Mary's infancy notes, um, uh, suggested that Mary kept notes of the events surrounding Christ's birth and later passed them on to Luke. Uh, which is unlikely, although I think that based upon what Luke says in the first chapter of his gospel, he talks about his research. He talks about how diligent he was to gather firsthand information. I think he, I think he interviewed Mary. I mean, I think he was he was going to first eyewitness. And saying so, tell me what you know. Okay, but this this is talking about a little bit different than that. This is saying that there's this there's this writing out there, this lost book, if you will, of the Bible that's floating around. And if we could just find Mary's infancy, note, if we could just learn more about that. Of course, there's we have movies today that spin off of these uh, these things. Uh, Luke's travel log, another similar example. This uh, there's this a uh, log of travels that. Uh, Luke's travels with the Apostle Paul, that this is something else that's floating around out there, the Aramaic Gospel of Matthew. So those are all just examples of non-existent writings that are not mentioned in the Bible. Again, I just, it's, to me it's just a distraction. It, it, just, it distracts us from actually just taking the text of Scripture at face value. And just studying it, just saying, okay, if it says Solomon was the author or Moses was the author or David was the author of this psalm, instead of just immediately assuming, well, that can't be true. You're just going to say, no, it's, it's true. Now, what can we learn from it? And these things just distract, I think, away from, from, from the Bible. Yes? Oh, do you have a Sorry.
1: Warner Wallace. Matter of fact, if, if those accounts of witnesses in a court situation don't vary, then they know there's been collusion. So yeah. actually it's, it's an imprint that, the, what, that the, these are individual, independent eyewitness accounts that matches entirely the whole structure yeah. of the gospel accounts. Yeah. Um, so I had a follow-up question about how did the hypercriticists deal with Joshua and God telling them this book of the law, and what did Joshua read to the people when they came into the land? I mean. Exactly. What do they say about
0: that? Yeah, and, that's, and we'll look at that in a minute. But it's amazing that the number of references that the Old Testament make back to Moses. Again, there's this assumed understanding that when the writers, later writers beyond Moses, and they say something about what happened in Moses' life and the words that Moses spoke to the people and that, and this issue of, I mean, when you go to the prophets in the Old Testament, they're all, well, they're all pointing back to Torah. They're all, they're all pointing back to the Pentateuch and saying that the people of Israel were not being faithful to keep their, their covenant with God. So there's this assumption that, I mean, the, the prophets speak as if to say, you know, there should be no doubt why you're going through what you're going through. There's a reason why the Assyrians. <laughs> there's a reason why the Babylonians. It makes total sense because you guys know that you haven't been faithful to the law. So they understood it, and every reference back, imagine if all those prophets were making reference back to that being that Moses was the one delivering those things to the people if that weren't true. If if all the prophets were saying Moses wrote that and the people knew that that wasn't the case, then they would discredit the prophet. I mean, that was part, that was the, in other words, again, that's the assumption is that the people had enough of an understanding that they would compare what was being said to what had previously been revealed. And so if the prophet started his message out by describing Moses as the one that God spoke through when the nation of Israel was, was founded, then they would immediately say, well, that's not true. And they wouldn't listen to the guy anymore. But all, the, all those prophets kept making reference to this. And the people just, they made the assumption that that was historical fact. That that's exactly what happened. So we'll look at some of those references, Mark, in just just a minute. Yeah, just to say the the old, the canon itself validates itself when you just see about see what certain writers said about certain things. Uh, so we have this last last one. This is where it gets way out in left field, right? Miscellaneous pretenders to the canon. We'll look at the apocrypha uh, in just just a minute, but this is anything from. And again, we're just talking about writings or books that people say should be a part of the canon, right? They want to include these things in the canon of, of Scripture. Uh, we have the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, of course, the, the Mormon cult accepts those things. Uh, it's doctrines and covenants. All those is inspired in canonical. Uh, science and health with key to the Scriptures. Mary, Mary Baker Eddy It's the Christian science Cult again, they claim that that's inspired. Um, we have the Unification Church, the Moonies, and they're, they're writing the Divine Principle. We have the writings of Ellen G. White, uh, who was the prophet, prophetess of the seventh of Seventh Day Adventism, uh, wrote many books. And now you'll and I have a friend of mine that lives up in the Northwest that has, we've had some dialogue on this because he's in this church and he'll say um, that's not the way we view these writings. You know they're not they're not inspired they're not the same as, as as scripture but but then you'll hear if you if you listen long enough you'll hear them quote these things and they speak of them as if they're scripture uh, they appeal to them in the very same same way um, and of course she's uh, her writings are totaled her writings are many times more than the length of the Bible um, You know the desire of the ages, great controversy between Christ and the Church, testimonies for the Church, patriarchs and prophets, uh, prophets and kings, steps to Christ. I mean, all these things that she she wrote. Clearly, there are are many within that church that that see her writings as uh, as authoritative and inspired. Uh, We've got ex cathedra pronouncements, uh, papal encyclicals uh, by the Catholic Church, um, who, who says that tradition and the infallible announcements of the Pope are in some ways uh, equally inspired as the Bible. We have decrees of the church councils. Again, the Catholic Church places a high value on these things, virtually equal to Scripture. Uh, Eastern Orthodox Church does that too. Uh, Creeds and confessions of faith. And I just throw that in here because um, I find that even among evangelicals that, that these these confessions of faith sometimes are elevated so high that sometimes you can't see the difference between them and Scripture. And so you ask someone about some teaching and they quote the confession <laughs> before they would quote the Scripture, right? They kind of default to the confession or to the creed. Again, these things, these confessions and creeds are, are helpful. And it's not that they're erroneous necessarily, they're just not inspired. So, you just have to, you have to know the difference between the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Book of Acts, right? I mean, it's like you have to know the, 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 the core distinction between those things. Um, we have Pentecostal prophecies uh, that are sometimes accorded inspirational status. Again, most would deny this. Uh, saying that they were, they're more like the unwritten prophecies of Elijah, or or the written but lost prophecies of someone like Samuel or Nathan in the Old Testament. Uh, in other cases, uh, however, these prophecies have been transcribed, published, and used along with the Bible. Sometimes they're even referred to as the 29th chapter of Acts. So they'll refer to these modern day prophecies as as if. They actually give them a title such as that to sort of say they should be in the canon, right? They're just they're ongoing, open-ended, God-breathed descriptions of what God is doing through the church today. So we we ended at Acts twenty-eight, but but God's still doing these things. And then they take some of these prophecies and they want to sort of almost tag them onto a book like Acts to say God is still speaking today in the same way as He did. Through his through the apostles.
1: Didn't Driscoll
0: use that. Yes, there are some. I'm not sure that 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 particular connection. I'm not sure it's the same. He's speaking of the same thing, but that is the name of his uh, church network. Uh, And then I'll just throw this one in. This is just because you might be thinking. Oh, yeah, the Mormons, you know, like I would never have that on my shelf or I would never look at that or think of that. So let me just throw this one in just to kind of bring it home a little bit more. Notes in certain study Bibles. Okay, right?
1: They're
0: not inspired? No, they're not inspired. (laughs) Although they are sometimes unconsciously read as if they were inspired and a part of the Bible itself. Right? Now the Catholic Church actually includes authoritative notes in some of their Bibles, so there's actually some commentary, and in their minds, the commentary is equal to the text itself. Uh, but even Protestants, right, have to be careful here. I mean, I love R.C. Sproul, love John MacArthur, uh, love love Henry Morris, um, but you know, you get one of their Bibles, and those you know, a lot of those things at the bottom. If you have a study Bible, those are not infallible. Uh, Matthew Henry. Love Matthew Henry. I mean, I, sometimes I hear people quote him like, <laughs> like it's Peter. Yeah, it's like they'll, they'll, they'll just default to Matthew Henry, you know. Um, you know
1: what's really interesting is that in, in Roman Catholicism, the different you know, groups, the different, like the Marianists and, and, and Franciscans and this and that, they understand that they have this line of direction given to them out, out of the papal throne, et cetera that they all have different revelations. It doesn't necessarily apply to everybody else. And I see that coming forward in Protestant denominations with this, you know, which Bible you have, Scoville Bible
0: or whatever, you know. Yeah, Schofield's another one, a Ryrie study. I mean, you know, you have these different and, and uh, people will, they do. They, you have to be careful. Like I said, I mean, it's, it's not that they're 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 bad or they're wrong. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I open up those study Bibles and I want to see what so-and-so has to say about a passage. But that's just something we need to keep in mind because, especially with new believers, right? Someone becomes a Christian. You give them a new Bible. You give them a MacArthur Study Bible. They don't know. You know what I'm saying? They're just reading. Did, have you have you have you been explicit and said, "Hey, now when you there's a line there on that page and all that small print at the bottom, just know what that is, right?" You comment? Well, yeah. The comment. Oh, oh yes. The part of the Bible, we're, we're, yeah, the we're. Yeah, they'll do that, or you have, a, is it the amplified version? Sometimes we'll parenthetically give you synonyms or things for for that, but they don't tell you necessarily. What, that's not the text, right? That's just a, a study guide trying to help you understand some of these terms. But in that case, not always that great. Uh, the synonyms aren't always that that fantastical. The New
1: World Translation adds words in where necessary to yeah. uh, support their
0: Okay. And then, even in the New American Standard, right? You have you'll, you'll be reading your Bible, and you'll find you'll see it where it's in italics. Okay, so you, in, in, or you'll see a note in the column is this was this was not found in earlier manuscripts, or the thing I like about the New American Standard is it tells you. <laughs> it says this is why this is in italics, and so it gives you the explanation uh, for that. Um, and like I said most of the time when you have that in the New American Standard. It's just trying to smooth it out in English. What it's saying is that when you, if you look at, say, the Greek New Testament, if they were to, if they were to translate the Greek directly into English, it would come across so choppy. It would sound like Yoda, you know, sort of like, you know, "Your father, he is," instead of just saying, "He's your father." You know, it's like, why did you do that? I mean, why did you put the predicate? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And so, everybody's, every translator's doing that. I mean, every translator trying to figure out how to say this in a way that's accurate but that makes sense to the people that are reading it today. That's the challenge of translation. What the New American Standard is doing sometimes when you have a verse that's in italics like that what it's saying is that in many of these cases if we were to, the, the verb is not supplied in the Greek or the subject is not supplied in the Greek it's assumed That you understand that this is what it's talking about because it was mentioned back four verses earlier, but now you're four verses later and you've forgotten what the subject of the sentence is. And so sometimes it'll supply it, but that that word is not mentioned again in the Greek New Testament. It's just saying you need to tie this back into what was mentioned a few verses ago because it's implied in the text. So it's just again, I like the New American Standard because it, it, it at least informs you of what's kind of what's going on. In that, but just be careful about those things. Puritans love the Puritans, but sometimes I hear people quote the Puritans like, "If they can find a Puritan that said it, it has to be true." They're like, "Hey, I had this great idea, and you know what Thomas Boston said, you know?" And they quote a Puritan like, "If if a Puritan said it, just by, I guess if you're a Puritan, I mean that's you know, just something about being called a Puritan." But it just like as if this has this punch behind it, just because someone was considered a Puritan preacher. Uh, And I could go on. I have a whole list of, but I won't. I won't. I won't.
1: won't.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Just keep in mind, none of those none of those writings are God breathed. Okay. Again, we love those commentators. We love those preachers, and we have, and like you said, Marcus, sometimes we get in these veins. Of ser- reading certain people and hearing, listening to certain people, and th- that kind of thing There's nothing wrong with that. Um, we just got to again be able to s- separate those things in our minds, and especially as we make disciples, we need to we need to teach people <laughs> those distinctions so that they're not they're not confused. So we need to
1: guard against being in double isolation. <laughs> I'll talk
0: to you after class. <laughs> You're confusing this, John. Double isolate. You want to give us a definition?
1: Yeah, that's where that's where John MacArthur
0: is. All that's needed and necessary. I mean, no. so, uh, be on guard about saying that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean that same
0: thing. Yeah, yeah. You want to be on, you want to be careful. So, and again, I mean, if you, if you listen to a teacher long enough, you're going to hear a teacher mention the same people. Right? You're going to know who they read after because they're probably going to be quoting those individuals. And again, that's not a bad thing.
1: They start sounding like
0: when they talk and they do that's my point is I, I i I found I told somebody this when I, when when I spend a lot of time around Shane, I find myself I'll pick up on his vocabulary yeah. Yeah. and then i'll get around if I spend a lot of time with Randy you know i, I, I my vocabulary shrinks I'm just
1: kidding
0: <laughs> I better get that I better edit that out. <laughs> No, but it's funny. It's uh, In fact, Randy, the other day, he goes, have you noticed Shane's saying this word recently? You know, you, you just get hung up on certain terms sometimes. And, and so then we start joking about it. It's like we try to find ways to use that term in our conversation around Shane to see if he notices that we're actually picking on him about that term. So
1: Shane says superlapsarianism and
0: Randy says you want to That's right. That's right. I'll have a combo number one. Okay, so... Um, so the school of thought we're, we're calling high, this, this higher criticism includes several different positions, but all essentially deny the genuineness and the early date of the Old Testament books as a whole. Most of those that are in that camp of higher criticism are, um, and liberalism are accepting the JEDP theory. Uh, most of them believe that David and Solomon wrote very little of the Old Testament most believe that the prophetic books should be divided among the prophetic authors and several of their successors, or that the prophets wrote nothing at all. So they don't even even the those, the, the, the major and minor prophets. They don't really give those men uh, credit for writing much of those things. Uh, they would embrace the idea that the that the historical Christian view of the origin of the Old Testament and its canonization is wrong. The Old Testament is full of error, historical, factual, doctrinal error. And um, that it may be a revelation from God, but only in a general sense of experiential revelation, not in the sense of actual, factual, divine truth. So it's sort of like they look at this issue of inspiration as really something that's going on almost as the reader interfaces with the Bible. So it's more dynamic, it's more subjective, sort of what God is speaking to you. Because this is right, this is what we hear all the time. People say, well, I was reading the Bible of the other day and, you know, God was speaking to me and telling me. And, and, and it's almost as if they're, they're more concerned about the experience of what God is teaching them through it than they are about the actual message itself, getting the message right. Because if you don't get the message right, if, if you don't know what Moses meant when he said such and such, then how can you ever bridge the gap over to what, how this applies to your daily life? But people rush to the personal experience and it's about essentially you read the Bible and what is God saying to you? And then that thing, whatever God said to you, people speak about that as if it has a, God's authority behind it. <laughs> and so this is what you find. You get into bi- small groups, you get into Bible studies and you read a passage and then you go around and everybody. So what do, what do you think that means? And, and what, what is God saying to you through that? And people share that it's different things. And, and then there's really no discussion about what does the passage mean? And so that's why I think this is, I mean, we certainly don't have a corner on the market here, but I would just say that we're in the minority as far as churches. We're in the minority in this community uh, as far as churches that would be concerned about understanding the message. What did the writer intend when he said such and such? That for us is the priority. We'll make the application. In fact, for that matter, the Spirit of God will make the application. If you understand the text, the Spirit of God, if you're a true believer, will it won't be hard <laughs> for you to bridge from the meaning of the passage and what God intended over to how should this affect the way that you treat people this week. But what we tend to do in preaching and teaching today is we spend the bulk of our time telling people how they're supposed to daily apply these things. But it's almost the application is practically divorced from the meaning of the text. So you have a 30-minute sermon... 5 minutes of that is looking at the passage itself and 25 minutes of that is talking about personal application. And personal application is not authoritative. If I tell you how I applied a passage to my marriage, my personal application of that passage to my marriage is not authoritative. If it were, then I would have to, I could I could literally mandate that what I did this week in my marriage every husband should do or else they're in sin. But I can't do that, right? but we don't always talk about it that way. We leave this impression that whatever God is teaching me to do in my home or in my job or in my relationships, that that somehow I can bind your, your conscience with those things. And so we got to get back to the text. got to get back to the text. All right. So the conservative Christian has always believed that the Old Testament is what it is, what it says it is, and that it arose in the way that it claims. Uh, the Pentateuch was written by Moses, the prophets by those men whose names are mentioned, the Davidic Psalms by David, and the history books written at a time roughly contemporaneous with the events concerned. So they didn't, these things weren't written hundreds and hundreds of years after the events took place. And we believe the whole Bible was completed about 400 BC. So the church has always believed that the Pentateuch came from. The hand of Moses this is the claim of the books themselves, uh, a claim that is in accordance with the facts of moses life. Numbers twelve tells us Moses was a leader, he was a scholar he was and actually uses this phrase a man of God, which which in a is a technical term in the Old Testament to describe someone that received revelation from God and was a spokesman for God. He, we know that he um, Uh, He received God's word face-to-face, the scriptures tell us. Uh, Hosea, interestingly, in Hosea 12, calls Moses a prophet. He refers to Moses as a prophet, although we 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 don't usually think of him in that way. But Moses really stands at the head of that line of men who revealed God's will to Israel and wrote much of it down for all time. Then we have, as I mentioned to Mark here, this, this evidence of later writings, uh, the witness of other Old Testament books to the Pentateuch and to one another. Uh, Moses is mentioned in the Psalms. He's mentioned in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, and Malachi. Uh, in the Psalms alone, one of those, uh, a poem is attributed to Moses, and it uses this phrase again, the man of God, Psalm, uh, Psalm 90. Um. In Psalm 103, a psalm of David, the revelation of God to Moses is mentioned. And then there's a verse that's quoted there from Exodus 34, verse verse 6. Several psalms mention Moses and Aaron's leadership. In fact, Psalm 106 gives a detailed history of Moses' leading the people out of Egypt and remarks that at the Red Sea that Israel believed God's word... But later, when they, when they refused to enter Canaan, the Promised Land, they did. verse 24 says, they did not believe in his word. So the, the implication, if you, if you take the, that uh, against the, the background of the history that's cited in Psalm 106, the implication is that Israel refused God's word spoken by Moses. So it's talking about Moses delivering this message to the people but what, what's interesting about Psalm 106 is it says that they believed God or they failed to believe God. <laughs> but what, what, what were they actually believing and not believing? They were actually believing or failing to believe what was given to them via Moses. So the implication is if Moses was giving it to them, it was from God. Okay, And we see that connection again all through the Old Testament. So throughout Israel's history and even before, because we have Enoch, Noah, Abraham, you could essentially say those men were prophets as well. Uh, There were men who were recognized as spokesmen for God and their word was regarded as true uh, by the faithful in the nation. They delivered supernatural revelations from God and the authority and divine nature of the prophet's word was accepted by his contemporaries. So Israel had many prophets through her long history and the documents repeatedly assert that the faithful of the nation listened to these prophets, accepting their words as the words of God. Um, Ancient Israel believed that God spoke by by the prophets. Uh, Naturally, as we mentioned, there were false prophets and the Israelites had to distinguish between the true and the false. Uh, And not every true prophet was believed and that's why I say they were believed by the faithful because there were true prophets of God who delivered God's word but were not believed, right? But some believed even at great odds, right? So many of them in Israel believed what the prophets had to say even though everything circumstantially was pointing to something else, right? And, of course, the world was giving them a different message, sometimes even just what was going on in their life situation, what the prophet was calling them to believe and to obey didn't seem like it was running contrary to their circumstances. But isn't that the way it is, right, in the Christian life? I mean, the Lord calls us to do things um, not live by, by our feelings and by our, our circumstances, but base our lives on the promise, promises of God. So the Old Testament books were written as they claim, stage by stage, year by year, throughout Israel's history from Moses and on down to the later prophets. Thus there is a continued story of Israel's history from the beginning to the Babylonian captivity. So in brief, in summary, it could be said that the view of the Old Testament itself and of the New Testament as well is that God's call them his organs, if you will. God's organs of or revelation to Israel were the prophets, and that's why Hebrews 1 tells us that God spoke by them. He spoke to our forefathers in times past, in different ways, but he did it via the prophets, by the prophets, and it's why we have in Second Peter 1, Peter says that we have the prophetic word made more sure. Uh, and then we could we don't even have time to go there, but we could just go to the, again, you could go to the life of Christ and just see how Christ himself, uh, the assurances of Christ himself regarding Mosaic auth- authorship um, and this view that the Old Testament was the work of the prophets because he made reference to Moses, but he made reference to other writers. And again, whether it was Jeremiah or Ezekiel or whoever, he, he didn't hesitate to say, those men wrote those men said and gave them the credit. Uh, well, the Apocrypha. We're gonna have to wait. This is too much. This is too much. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk we'll jump right in talking about that. And again, for some that's not a big issue, but it is by far the largest group of writings that is debated uh, in relation to the canon. Uh, and so yeah, you've got these other other Non-existent writings; um, these miscellaneous pretenders. Um, but we've got this issue of the apocrypha, which were written mainly around two hundred, uh, sort of two hundred BC. So these things had been written, um, and they had they had they were in existence. They had record of them during the life of Christ. And so the issue is, when we specifically as we talk about the Old Testament, is do we include them? were they included who accepted them who didn't accept them and for what reasons so we'll talk about these 12 13 14 or so the different books of course the Roman Catholic Church is is officially brought these things into uh, into their uh, canon uh, but even as you go back into church history you'll see even some of the reformers that also seem to include some of these things and that could just be Catholic, Roman Catholic a hangover from the Roman Catholic Church, um, but we'll come. We'll look at those things, and I'll give you some sort of the reasons why the Catholic Church embraces and defends the acceptance of these books, and then why we do not. Uh, what are what are sort of the counter arguments to that? And and I think it'll be pretty pretty straightforward. You know why we do not include those books in uh, in, in our Old Testament. And again, we'll come back. and We'll talk about. Um, we'll we'll wrap up talking about sort of the imp- implications or applications of of this issue of of canonicity. So you know, folks, it's you know, there's a lot here. Um, I mean, even what I'm you know giving you guys is is uh, is very 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 kind of distilled down, boiled down. Uh, it's ve- it's very dense. Uh, I mean, every one of these subjects, there's a lot of materials out there on it. But uh, I just, you know, whatever I can do to to convince you that, I mean, we we are people. Do not be ashamed to say we are of the book. Uh, again, there's there's a there's a um, there's a message that's out there today that is trying to separate and drive a wedge between a person having a relationship with Jesus Christ and a person being committed to this book. So that it's all about you just having a relationship with Jesus but not really wanting to dive in and know what the Word of God says. And uh, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that they're driving this wedge between knowing Christ, knowing His Word, knowing God's Word. But they're so elevating this personal relationship with Christ that I think what's happening. I mean, it's just a generation away, folks. I mean, it's just one generation, and the young people of today that are hearing that message, uh, th- th- this is just going to disappear. I mean, there, there, there's no need. I mean, I have a relationship with Jesus. Why do I need this? And then, and then that it just becomes some some sort of gnostic mystical. Uh, a totally subjective thing, your relationship with Christ, and nobody can critique it. Nobody can challenge it because to challenge it, you'd have to go here, right? And as soon as you go here, and I, my wife does it sometimes, she, she, she talks to some of these people and, and, and interacts with them sometimes via email and, and social media, but it's, it seems like there's this trend that as soon as she ta- even brings up the Bible, they get defensive, there's this immediate shutdown on their part to say, "I don't have, to, you know, I don't have to listen to that." You know, she "But what does the Bible say?" But what does the Bible say? We do not need to be ashamed to say we are people of this book, and that we have we have what God intends for us to have. And this is the battle. I mean, this is to 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 remain faithful, folks. We have to remain faithful to the scriptures. We cannot be faithful to Christ without being faithful to the scriptures. So I think where we're headed as a culture is we're going to have a a massive number of people in our culture that are supposedly, they're evangelicals, they're Christians, they're followers of Christ. When you see these Barna surveys and they say, you know, the Christians say, then you read all the criteria. I mean, all you have to do is just, it seems like if you've ever stepped foot in a church, you're a Christian. You know, it's such a broad definition of that. Uh, But the time is coming when... Uh, Christian true believers are going to be tested. They're going to be put through the fire. And, and their ability to, be, to, to, stand, to withstand that is going to come down to their grasp of this book. And so don't buy into that thing that you can have a relationship with Christ apart from what he's revealed in the word of God.